So we're in Romans chapter 12. Head on over there. My question to you this morning is, what does a true Christian look like? In asking that question, it's inferred that there are outward actions that you can see. There's a lifestyle that you can see. There are things, there's supposedly fruit that you can see. It's a way of living then that should distinguish a Christian from a non-Christian. You should be able to see some of that. What are some of those things? How does a true Christian act? Are they so different from culture that they have no practical impact? Do we, do we seek to just remove ourselves from culture entirely? Or are we so blended in to culture that we have no difference at all? Paul is going to give us a series of commands this morning, and many of you have a subject heading above verse 9 that says, Marks of the True Christian. And so that is indeed what we are going to look at this morning. So we are going to be in Romans chapter 12. Last week we broke into the open waters of chapter 12 after the theological jungle of 9 through 11. Paul drops the mother of all therefores in 12 verse 1. He told us that because of everything I have been saying for 11 chapters about the gospel, the mercy of God in the gospel, therefore, brothers, this is what you are to do. Right? He tells us who we are before he tells us what we're supposed to do. Now he's really going to tell us what to do this week. You were saved last week to die to self, we saw, to be in sync with the biblical worldview and to serve the church. But what about the nitty-gritty? What does it actually look like practically? What are we supposed to be doing as Christians? What should we look like? And as I mentioned a few moments ago, there are things that we should be able to see. And maybe we can put all of this under the subject heading of the word love. Christ told us that you will recognize my followers by their love for one another and their love in general. So, so maybe we can all group this under the heading of love. And so full disclaimer, real talk, this whole section from 9 to 21 has no logical organization whatsoever. It is just rapid fire, shotgun, the Apostle Paul. He's nearing the end of the letter, so he's like throwing all of these things in. He tends to do this. I've told him not to do that. But he tends to do this towards the end of, end of a letter. He just throws all this stuff in. And my little OCD brain goes crazy because there's no organization. So if you're like me, it's not going to work, okay? It's, they're not going to be, there's no perfect outline here. And I struggled with that this week. But we're doing our best here to organize this in a semi-logical organization. Paul's jamming like 20 commands in here, and they're all important. And let's look at the first section. Look in Romans 12, starting in verse 9. He says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Paul starts off right away with love. And some, again, would say, myself included, that this is what this whole passage hangs on, love. He says, let love be genuine. Our word here for genuine is actually the word for hypocrisy. 
And hypocrisy at that time, if you were in the Greek or Greco-Roman theater, you would put a mask on. That's what, that's what that, that was the term for that. You would put a mask on as you would act out your part. Paul says, don't be like that when you are loving. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't be fake in your love. Be genuine. He tells us to abhor or to hate what is evil and hold fast to what is good, namely anything that is sinful. We are to hate like God hates. God hates sin, so we too are to hate sin. God hates evil, so we too are to hate evil. And we are to cling and to celebrate to what God loves, what God celebrates. To love one another, he says, with brotherly affection. In verse 9, the word for love he chooses is agape, that that selfless, others-oriented word. But in verse 10, he uses a different word. He uses philos. That the brotherly love between brothers and sisters. And so in verse 11, it will tell us that Paul is talking to brothers and sisters in the church. Spiritual brothers and sisters in the Lord. Along with that, we are called to outdo one another in showing honor. One of the most undervalued commands in the New Testament. Likewise, verse 11, he says, Not to be slothful in zeal. Not to be hesitating, but be energetic in the Spirit, serving the Lord. Surely we serve our Lord everywhere, but primarily, of course, in the context of the love that we have for one another, we serve in the context of the local church alongside each other. And verse 12 gives us a trio of commands. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. And these are related. John Calvin notes how prayer is required to rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation. Those things just don't come out of our own strength. He says this, as both of these things are far above our strength, we must be instant and constant in prayer and continually. God, that he might suffer our hearts to faint and be pressed down or be broken by adverse events. You can't do those other two things unless you're praying constantly. And Calvin picks that up. Verse 13, he commands us to contribute to the needs of the saints. Again, brothers and sisters, saints in the church, and seek to show hospitality. Hospitality commonly misunderstood as having our friends over for pizza, which that's having your friends over for pizza, and we should do that. But hospitality really means kindness to strangers. And in that time, Uh, In the first century, travel was dangerous. Many didn't have the funds to stay at the local Marriott, so they were very much dependent on local brothers and sisters to have them into their homes and be hospitable to them. The church led the way in hospitality. Putting this all together, I'll make the first point this way. We are commanded to love the church. We are commanded to love the church. The context of what these first few things are falling under. We're members of one another in the church. As Paul said last week, each having many gifts, many members who do not have the same function, and as we exist and coexist with each other in love, we love the church. When I say the church, I don't mean the building. I don't mean the chairs. I don't mean the songs. I don't even mean the doctrine, although how important that is. I mean the people. The church is regenerated believers in Jesus Christ. The church is living stones. The church is a royal priesthood. The church is you guys. And so we love you. We love each other. And as we love each other in the church, genuinely, without hypocrisy, we celebrate the good and we don't celebrate the sin. 
We are to love each other with brotherly affection. We should be happy to see one another. I love the Sunday mornings when everybody's milling about in the lobby seeing one another. It's happy to, we're happy to see one another. We greet one another. We hug one another. We greet each other with a sign of affection. In family devotions this week, we've been going through the book of Luke with uh, the table talk uh, material from Ligonier. And it was the account of Judas betraying Jesus. And how Jesus, Judas betrayed Jesus. How? With a kiss. A sign of brotherly affection. A sign that should be reserved for love between brothers was now twisted and perverted to be a sign of betrayal. And how much, how much worse is that? That a sign that should be something that's so beautiful now is something that's betrayal. Instead of betraying those in the church, we should be honoring them and seeking to outdo each other, to show each other the highest level of honor to each other. We honor each other by keeping our word. We honor each other by keeping our commitments. And of course, Paul honors, he, he ties that in with serving. We honor each other by serving zealously, energetically. We honor each other also practically by reaching out to one another, maybe, and not waiting for someone to reach out to us. We serve enthusiastically. And when we're on the schedule to serve, first we are aware and we honor each other by doing practical things like responding to your planning center requests. That would be really, really honoring so that people know you're going to come or not going to come. These practical things. And we do this all dependently on God. We rejoice in hope. We're patient in tribulation. We're constant in prayer. Prayer itself, the language of dependence. When we pray, that's what we're saying. We need you, God. I can't do this on my own. And we go out of our comfort zone in hospitality. Here's a practical challenge. Have someone over that you don't know or don't know very well. There's a lot of new people in our church, which is great. Invite one of them over. Go out of your comfort zone. Take the initiative to reach out. Invite them over. Get to know them. Hear their story. Talk about the things of the Lord. Seek to show hospitality. Why? Because that's how Jesus loved the church. Ephesians chapter 5, talking about the covenant of marriage, challenges husbands to love and to lead like Christ. If we look at Ephesians 5, starting in verse 25, Paul says this, Husbands, love your wives, watch this, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And so husbands, we are to love our wives, but we're to love our wives in such a way that it is sanctifying. The way that we love our wives, we should make them or enable them or empower them to be better Christians. We should show them that. There's a direction that we're supposed to be loving our wives. Melanie has a way of telling me when I'm not loving her in this general direction. And she's usually right. And we do that with our words. And she says, you're not washing me with the water of the word. You're washing me with negativity and sarcasm right now. It's not very sanctifying, and she's right. How we do that with each other. Paul says it's, it's a representation of how Christ loves the church, because what did Christ do for us? He sanctified us. He set us apart. Through his death, he gave himself up for us so that we could be forgiven, 
so that we could be holy. It's the ultimate example of loving through serving. This is the way we are to love others. And if we need a bigger example, of course, than what Paul has been commanding us here, we bring it back to Jesus. In each one of these three parts today, I'm going to bring it back to Jesus because we love the church because Jesus loved the church. Scripture tells us that. And what does he require from our love? In one word, humility. Look at verse 14. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Paul commands us to bless those who persecute us. Bless and not curse. Bless is a churchy, Christian-y word. Bless literally means, in the Greek, to say good. We are saying good about someone. And notice who we're supposed to be saying good about. Those who are persecuting us. And that's not in some weird, twisted Ned Flanders way where we just kind of glance over everything that's happening and say, oh, it's good, he's persecuting me. Great, that's cool. No, no, no. We're called to say good things, and part of the way we say good things is to speak the truth. But we do it in a way that's loving. When they speak lies directed at us, we speak the truth. When they are reduced to personal attacks and slander, we don't stoop to their level. We don't respond that way. Elsewhere, it's going to tell us we don't respond to sin with more sin. We don't sin, respond to evil with more evil. That does not mean that we have to be a doormat, that just, we just ignore sin and unrighteousness, but it, it means that we don't get sucked into their unspiritual and sinful speech. Likewise, when others are rejoicing, what do we do? We rejoice with them. When they weep, we weep. This is one of the most powerful things we can do with someone else. Why? Because it says to them, they see me. They get me. They feel me. They understand what I'm going through. There's sympathy there. And so if someone's weeping, weep with them. If someone's rejoicing, rejoice with them. If someone gives you a prayer request or something that you've been thinking about, ask them again how that went. And when you have the good news of God's answered prayer, rejoice with them. Celebrate the good in someone's life. And when they're in trial and despair, don't ignore them. Enter into this despair with them. That's the weird part, right? We don't really know how to do that because we think we have to come up with some sort of answer. We don't have to come up with an answer. We have to be there. We have to weep with them. Don't feel pressure to come up with an answer, but don't ignore them. And so doing it, verse 15, we, we live in harmony with each other. That doesn't mean thinking the exact same way about the exact same things like some sort of cult we're narrow-minded robots, but rather, as Paul said in 12, verse 1 last week, we think with our renewed minds. We think the same way as far as discerning what is good and pleasing to the Lord, and we do that with the Spirit's help through the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Therefore, we are not to be proud, not to be thinking too much of ourselves, knowing that we're all sanctification works in progress. Never think of yourself as having arrived in sanctification. No one has arrived. There's no one in this room, myself especially included, has arrived 
in sanctification. That helps us, right? We are all sinners saved by grace. That should be our primary identity. Do not think too highly of ourselves. Do not think too much of our own wisdom. Therefore, be willing and ready to associate with the lowly, the humble, those that we don't naturally gravitate towards, those that we may not naturally click with. It's wonderful to come here and to be with our friends, right? To be with the people that we click with right away that we go to. Try going to the people that you don't know. Try going to the people that you don't so much click with. Be willing to associate with anyone. Verse 17, he says, Therefore, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Church, we never have the green light to sin. We never do. We never say, well, they sinned, so guess what? Game on. Here it comes. I teach eighth graders. This is how eighth graders think. I caught one, by, one, one of my young men this week ready to launch a pencil into someone's eyeball. Well, probably wasn't that. He was going to throw it at them. And I'm like, what are you doing? He said, well, that's because he punched me. It's like, well, mm, so you're going to blind him with a pen? That's not how this works. Just because somebody did something to you doesn't mean you have a green light to then exact revenge on them. It doesn't work like that. But Christians, sometimes we think like eighth graders, don't we? A lot of times we think like eighth graders. We think, well, they ignored me, so I'm going to ignore them. We think, well, they didn't notice this, so I'm not going to notice that about them. Or they said that to me, so I'm going to say that back to them. Or I'm not going to say anything to them. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to punish them by not talking to them at all so that they have no idea that I'm mad at them. <laughs> then you're not really punishing them at all. We need to talk to each other about these things. Instead, as verse 10 told us, we are to honor one another, even especially if they are not honoring us. It doesn't say honor them if they are honoring you. It says, what did it say? Outdo one another in honor. Seek to go over the top in showing honor to someone else. Keep going. Honor, that doesn't mean when people walk in the room, we bow to them. That means that we notice them, we are others-oriented, and we do the little things that show that we esteem them. We try to make their lives just a little bit easier. Verse 18 helps us. It says, if possible, or as much as possible, as much as is up to you, live in peace with all. We know that because of sin, it's impossible for us to live in peace with all. That's why Paul says that. He says, if possible, as much as it depends on you, Live at peace with all. This is one of the top 10 pastoral counseling verses that I give all the time. Because how many broken relationships do we have? How many relationships in conflict do we have? How many relationships, especially Thanksgiving, yay, Christmas is coming, right? Where we get, right? Some, some conflicts are not going to be fixed this side of heaven. But church, as long as it's up to you, you should be ready and willing to fix that relationship should that situation change. We can't make people think the way we do. It would be great if we could. We can't make people think the way we do. We can't convince them that they're wrong. The Holy Spirit does that. But we're the ones that need to keep loving, keep speaking truth, and be ready for their heart to change. 
as long as it's up to us, live at peace with all. It doesn't mean we don't try. Of course we try. But it also means that we don't maybe expect too much out of this life that is reserved for the next life. Heaven is going to be the place where there's no conflict. Heaven's going to be a place where there's no, no sin and no crying. We try our best, and Paul says, as, as long as it's up to you, as far as it goes with you, your responsibility, do your best to live in peace with all, knowing that because of evil, because of sin, that's going to be a complete impossibility for 100%. All of these commands require us to love in a special way with humility. So that's the second point. We are commanded to love humbly. We're commanded to love humbly. That's the polar opposite of the worldview in the United States of America, right? Do what you got to do for you. If they strike you, destroy them. Hold grudges. Get payback. Forgive very, very rarely, and only if you have to. Yet the Christian, the true Christian, a mark of a true Christian, is called to love and to love humbly. This means when we are persecuted, namely for our faith as Christians, we do not descend into the swamp of personal attacks and slander. Because guess what, guys? That's usually where it goes. When we get in a conversation with someone who has an anti-worldview, an atheistic worldview, or an agnostic worldview, or maybe even a progressive Christian worldview, eventually they're going to run out of, of, of ammunition and answers, and they're just going to start cussing you out. We see it all the time on these man-on-the-street videos, right? They're going to turn to an ad hominem, or they're going to turn to a slander. They're going to turn to a personal attack. Don't be reduced to that level. Don't respond to sin with more sin. This doesn't mean we, we just don't say anything. We still speak out against evil, and we have to do so clearly and boldly, but humbly. We speak out against the, the evils of the woke agenda, the LGBTQ brainwashing in our public schools, the slaughter of innocence in abortion, the list goes on. We can't go along with anything that doesn't go along with God's word. Calvin challenges us here so well. He says, courteousness should not denigrate into compliance. Courteousness should not denigrate into compliance. We're not agreeing, but neither are we just a doormat and letting them walk all over us too. But neither will we get sucked into a war of words. Well, let's keep in mind, we are not at war with people anyway. We're not at war with people. We're at war with worldviews. We're at war with ideas. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians that we destroy arguments. It doesn't say we destroy people. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Think clearly about how you will be perceived. He says, think about what is honorable for all. Think like every text message you send, every email you send is going to be up on these screens. Ha! <laughs> right? Think about what it would look like. Paul commands us in verse 17 again, think about what is honorable in the sight of all. This is not people-pleasing, but rather speaking the truth in love and humility, and it is possible. It's a small piece of real estate to stand on, but we've got to stand on it. We need to speak the truth. We need to speak the truth humbly and not give in to sin all around us. And again, as long as it's up to us, be at peace with everyone. This goes against some of these things, goes against every bone in our American 
body. Forgive them? Be at peace with them? Absolutely not. Did you see what they did to me? Did you hear what they said to me? Did you see the sin? Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Did they sin against you? Has anyone else that we know as the center of our entire religion been sinned against? Maybe Jesus was sinned against, and what did he do? Instead of sinful revenge, Philippians 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and as of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is where Paul's saying, he's anticipating this objection from the, the, the Philippian church saying, how far should we go with this humility thing, Paul? How, what are you telling us? How far should we go? He says, example A, how about Jesus? He went to the cross. Have this mind among yourselves, yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. We love humbly because Jesus loved humbly, not just because Paul's telling us to. And we see how far Jesus went with this love in humility. There is way more at stake, church, than our reputations. It is the glory of God working through us. And we are commanded to love, and we're commanded to love humbly, even to our enemies. That's where Paul lands the plane. Look back in Romans 12, in verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul calls them, Beloved. In other words, he loves them. He's showing his affection for them. Once again, I believe, showing that this whole section is stitched together in love. He commands them to never avenge themselves, but to leave it, or leave space, rather, for the wrath of God. And then he quotes Deuteronomy 32, 35, in context from the Song of Moses, after Moses indicates that he's not going into the promised land, that he's instead going to die, and Joshua is going to take over. Speaking of the vengeance then that Yahweh will inflict on the Canaanites for their horrific sin and horrific rebellion, he says, you are not to exact revenge. Leave room for God. That's his job, just like he did with the Canaanites. Remember Deuteronomy? We are not to exact revenge. In verse 20, it says, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. I hope that's perfectly clear, and we can all walk away understanding that. 
This has puzzled theologians for a long time. This does not mean that we get to actually heap burning red-hot coals on the heads of our enemies, okay? Just want to state the stuff at the bottom shelf just to make sure if any of you got the Kingsford going on at home for something you can scoop out on your neighbor. No, that's not, that's not what we're talking about here. Not physical burning coals. There's one of two applications here. Either the more abuse that our enemies inflict on us, they are only storing up more wrath against them that God will pour out. So it could be that as we are taking sinful hits, so to speak, as we are taking abuse, as we're taking persecution, God sees that and he's storing up wrath, more burning coals for the enemy should they not repent. Or it could mean that perhaps the more evil they do, they will start to feel the pressure, the burning pressure, the shame, the remorse, and it will burn in them and hopefully bring them to repentance. Either way, it's not our job to inflict vengeance on our enemies. It's God's job. We do not judge our enemies. God does. Our job, well, verse 21 is an appropriate summary. It says, do not be overcome by evil, but rather overcome evil with good. And what does it have to do with love? It has everything to do with love because we just don't love those that love us. Third point is we are commanded to love our enemies. We're commanded to love our enemies. Our job, church, is not to seek revenge on our enemies, but to love them and leave room, of, uh, leave room for the wrath of God because, in fact, they aren't necessarily our enemies when you think about it. Ultimately, they're God's enemies. If they're, if they're railing against God and all things of God, we don't need, the Trinity's closed, right? We don't need the junior Holy Spirit coming in there seeking to add more of our own wrath. No, no, God will take care of that. When we don't leave room for God's wrath, what we do is we take the place of God himself. Murray says it this way, the essence of ungodliness is that we presume to take the place of God, to take everything into our own hands. It is faith to commit ourselves to God and cast all our care upon him and we invest all our interests in him. Paul's saying that wrath is God's. If you start to take it, guess what you're trying to play the role of? God. And that's never a good thing. By holding grudges, by refusing to forgive, by distancing ourselves, or worse, going on the offense in revenge, we are taking the place of God and we are sinning ourselves. Instead, we are to love our enemies by actively overcoming evil with good. Spurgeon has much to say about this. This passage gives us a choice between two things and bids us to choose the better one. We must either be conquered by evil or we will conquer evil, one of the two. We conquer evil with good, direct, and overt acts of kindness. That is, if anyone has done you wrong, do not only forgive it, but avenge it by showing him kindness as well. You know what Spurgeon does there? He's like, no, 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 go on the offensive. Go on the offensive and showing them kindness, especially because they did evil to you. How can we possibly do that except by leaving room for the wrath of God? We remember at the end of the day, evil gets nothing. That's, we've got to think future. We've got to think judgment day. We've got to think, if this continues and they don't repent, evil's getting away with nothing because they will stand before God someday. 
Commentator Tom Schreiner sums it up very well as saying this, believers will not be able to conquer feelings of revenge unless we recognize that God will eventually set all accounts right. We would fall prey to retaliation in the present if we did not know that God would vindicate us in the future. Fire your inner lawyer. God will make all things right. We don't have to do this constant need for self-justification. God will set all things right. He sees all things. That frees us to do what? Love our enemies in the way that he calls us to. Specifically by not taking revenge on them from wrong, but also overcoming evil with good. And so practically, who are we holding grudges against? Who would we consider our enemies? Or maybe worse, who are we plotting revenge against? And once again, we look to Jesus. Did Jesus do this? How far did he go? In church, we know, we just read back in chapter 5, he died for his enemies. Chapter 5, verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? We love our enemies. In fact, we seek to save our enemies. That's what we're doing. Jesus did that. He loved his enemies. He died for us while we were his enemies. And we seek to save them only through the faith of the one who died for us. And so what's the point of all this? What's the mark of the true Christian? Here's the big idea. The true Christian loves then like Jesus loves. I had in uh, the first point uh, or the first version of this, big idea that the Christian loves like Jesus loved. Past tense, but then I realized um, Jesus is still loving. <laughs> like he's still, still alive. And so I want to say it this way. The true Christian loves like Jesus loves. He continues to love that way. And Jesus is still loving the church, his bride. We are his people. He empowers us to do his work, and as joyful and fruitful servants, we do it in the service of the greatest king. Ask yourself, am I loving the church? Do I love my brothers and sisters in Christ? Do I serve joyfully and energetically? Do I seek to outdo others in showing honor, even to those that I may not perceive deserve it? Jesus is still loving, humbly, of course, the ultimate example of the love of Jesus is the cross, of what he has done for us. We read it in Philippians. He humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death, even to death on a Roman criminal cross. That's how much he loved in humility. Ask yourself, would my love be characterized as a humble love, an others-oriented love? Again, Think of Jesus, how he enters into our suffering with us. He doesn't stand far off, shaking his head, wondering when we're going to get our little sin problem fixed. No, he came to earth. He entered this sin-stained earth and called us to himself. That's what we are called to do with each other. Through his spirit, which comforts, convicts, empowers, calls us to himself, he shows us perfect patience and grace, yet he never tolerates sin. Jesus is still loving his enemies. He's calling sinners to himself by grace through faith in Christ. Christian, we are all recipients of this love. 
that Jesus has for us who were at one time, one time his enemies. He opened our eyes to the sin that imprisoned us. He opened our eyes to the fact that we have a king, that we have a creator, that our sin has broken that relationship and we are under his wrath. And he opened our eyes to the provision he's made in Jesus Christ and he's given us faith. As we sang this morning, once your enemies, but now we're seated at your table. Note where this is placed again. Not a list of commands in isolation, but only after Paul for 11 chapters has gone through the depths of the gospel. Ask yourself, do you love your enemies? Do you pray for your enemies? Do you pray for them to come to Christ and for that conflict to be resolved? Would someone look at your life after reading this paragraph, these verses 9 through 21, would someone look at your life and say, yes, these are some of the marks that I see in Mike as a true Christian. Would someone say that? Where can we celebrate God's grace and growth? Where do we need to grow more? Nobody's going to nail this list, right? Nobody's going to be like, yeah, man, this week, uh, yeah, I got them all. I was good. That's where grace comes in, church. That's where love comes in. But this this scripture gives us the goal. We love like a true Christian loves, like Jesus loves. And because above all else, the love of Jesus is what compels us. And that is what he said we would be identified by. John 13 says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The true Christian church loves like Jesus loves. Lord, this is a difficult passage. It's a crystal clear passage. It is just nonstop commands and, and nonstop conviction. As we think about the many ways that we fail in these. We all fail in these in many ways. And therefore, we are in need of your grace, Lord. Let this word from your word not be a word of, of being beat down for how much we fail in these things. But let it be an encouragement to strive and press on. Because Christ loved us, we too can love like this. And may our lives be characterized more and more, increasingly with increasing measure day by day, growing degree to degree, being transformed by that glory where we would see these things in our lives day by day and we would see them with each other and we would rejoice. Lord, give us great wisdom and great discernment as we deal with this world that is in rejection of you, where we do have enemies because they are enemies of you. Help us to have great discernment in our words and in our actions, Lord, whether they, they be online or text message or in person. And Lord, we even pray for those relationships that are not at peace, those relationships that, that we all can think of, and we pray for peace. We pray that above all, we would have a, a sobering kind of thought of, of this world and, and yet not expect everything to be perfect here. We know the presence of sin includes conflict and relationships, but Lord, as long as it is up to us that we would live at peace with everyone, and we pray for that peace. We pray for repentance where there needs to be repentance and relationships to be restored. We pray, Lord, that we would not be overcome by evil, but we would overcome evil 
by good. Help us to see the good that we know we need to do. And therefore, by doing it, especially when we don't feel like it, we would bring you glory. And Lord, may we display these marks of a true Christian by loving as Jesus loves us. And we ask it all in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.